This is unstructured. Today we're with Brian Ahern, CPCU, CTM, and CMCT. These are all credentials. I'm not sure what they all mean, but I really want to focus on the last one, which is part of the uh, Cialdini method. Brian is one of 20 people in the world who was trained personally by Robert Cialdini, who I know I've mentioned before, has the seminal works of Influence and more recently the book Presuasion. Now, Brian, I understand, has moved from his career into Influence full-time now. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing great, Eric. Thank you for having me on the show. And uh, it's extra exciting because Friday was my last day after 28 and a half years with uh, state auto insurance, and I've been in the insurance industry for well over 30 years, uh, but I decided to leave and pursue influence people on a full-time basis, and I could not be more excited. And so you are really my first step into this new career, and, and I'll just say even more broadly, new life. Fantastic. I think that's awesome. Um, I've been to your site, influencepeople.biz, and mm -hmm. it's a very nice-looking site. I'm on to Thank you compliment you on that and didn't get a chance to go deep into it, but I understand you have a course on LinkedIn Learning, formerly lynda.com. Yes. Uh, a couple of years ago, went out and recorded Persuasive Selling, where I looked at eight parts of the sales process and, and how does the psychology that I teach, how does that underlie that? So it's really a sales course, but with that foundation of influence and persuasion and just a few weeks ago, I was back out in Santa Barbara to record another course, and it's about coaching and how can you mm -hmm. take Cialdini's principles of persuasion and, and utilize them throughout the coaching process to become a more effective coach. Oh, that's awesome. So, um, And this is any kind of coaching or um, business coaching or athletic coaching? It's more on a, on a business coaching. Okay, okay. I, I can't help but think um, I'm also a runner that a lot of his methods could still be very effective, um, even for athletes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I took, uh, and like you, I, I am a runner, but for many years did Taekwondo with my daughter and I would always sit there and think, Oh boy, you know, master black could do a much better job engaging, especially the kids to get them to go home and practice. And, and one of the principles that we talk about in, the psychology of persuasion is consistency, that when you ask somebody and get them to commit to you, they're more likely to do something. But a big failing many coaches have is telling the athlete what to do rather than saying, you know, look, Billy, will, will you go home and practice? And then Billy says, yes, Master Black. And then little Billy is probably going to go practice more. So there's all throughout that process of, of dealing with athletes. Yes, the psychology of persuasion can help you uh, get to better results. Okay, that's interesting. Like on the consistency um, with a running training plan, it could be. So how many times a week are you planning to run? Yep. And then when they say four, great. And then they don't want to disappoint themselves and they don't want to disappoint you. Well, that's awesome. Now, um, I want to go through the six psychological <laughs> principles, but Rather than just a straight by road, I mean, obviously, a, a general description is awesome, but I'd like to know two things on these. Like, one, how can they be applied? Because it's great to understand the theory, mm -hmm. but the application really is so much handier. And two, how do you defend against it? Because some of these tools can be used in a shady manner. Sure. They could be used for pure manipulation. And... and 
let me say this, Eric, for, for you and, and your listeners. If it weren't for that word manipulation, I guarantee you, you and I would not be talking today. And I would not be doing what I'm doing. I would not have started Influence People. And let me quickly tell you why that's the case. Probably, I think it was 2003, so some 15 years ago, somebody that used to work in my department came down and gave a video to my boss and I, and she was studying for her master's at Ohio State, and she said, I think you guys would really like this video. Well, it was Robert Cialdini presenting at Stanford and talking about the psychology of persuasion. As I watched the video, the light bulb came on. I'm like, holy cow, this explains all of the sales techniques that we teach people. It's all the psychology about why, why it works. So I started to use the video in some training, and what I really appreciated about Cialdini's approach was his stance on ethics. He was very clear about non-manipulative ways to get people to do things. So I'm using the video, and, and because I liked it so much, I signed up for Stanford's marketing to get other videos. They had a lot of great material. And one day, I saw their latest marketing flyer, and it said in bold letters, call it influence, persuasion, or even manipulation. Mm. And I couldn't believe that they used that word because of how clear he was in non-manipulative ways to get people to do things. Now, I don't know why, but I felt compelled to address it. So I emailed Stanford and I basically said this. I don't know anybody who wants to be manipulated, nor do I know anybody who wants to be known as a good manipulator. That one word cannot be helping your sales, but it really could be hurting. Never heard from Stanford, but sometime later, my phone rang and it was a representative of Robert Cialdini's. And she said, I'm calling you on behalf of Dr. Cialdini to personally thank you you send an email to Stanford, and because of that, they're changing the marketing of our video. Huh. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And as we had a conversation, she said, you know, if, if uh, state auto insurance ever needs a guest speaker, Cialdini travels the world, he talks about this. And I said, you know what? Sit next to the lady who books our speakers. Would you like to talk to her? <laughs> and as fate, fate would have it, summer of 2004, he was in Columbus, Ohio a couple of times, addressed what we called leaders conferences and talked about the psychology of persuasion. And it was during that time that my boss and I went to Arizona. We went through the two day principles of persuasion workshop. And then I said, you know what? I need to get certified to teach this because we could bring it back and teach our managers and supervisors because they have to get their work done through people. And then we could make it a sales offering. We could reconstruct some things and, and use it as a sales offering. Hmm. And he said, great. Three years later, he said, great. It took me three years of persistency to ultimately get the green light, but I did. And it was January of 2008 when I went out and got certified. So it's been over 10 years now that I've been working with Influence at Work, which is Robert Cialdini's organization. But to bring this full hmm. circle, Eric, if it were not for that word or manipulation, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today because of just how things unfolded because of that one word. Wow. So you essentially had a master course in um, persuasion convincing your manager. Yes. And, <laughs> and also and also in persistency. But somebody described me once as a the kind of person, I'm, I'm like a dog Terrier. that has a bone that will not let go of the bone. And and I, I didn't. I just kept. And, and that's been something that served me quite well in life is is just a persistency in whatever I have done. That's fantastic. And, you know, it's funny because another name will come up when you're talking about influence and being at a university 
I'm not surprised they would think in this manner, wrote Machiavelli. Mm-hmm. So yep. they probably were thinking, oh, it's a Machiavellian procedure, manipulation, da-da-da-da, whatever. Um, now, one question on that, would it be fair to say that influence is all well and good, but you better have the goods to back it up? Oh, absolutely. You, you, you know, whatever product or service, which, which I come from the business background, whatever it is that you're promoting, um, you better believe in it. And you better be truthful about it, because if you if you don't believe in it, it's going to come through. And, and if it's not as good as you're saying, well, then you are manipulating. So but there are ways to utilize influence where you can even talk about the downsides of your product or service, because nothing is perfect. And you can do so in a way that, that can help you more quickly overcome some of those perceived weaknesses and, and maybe even turn it into a strength for you personally as you gain credibility and trust with somebody. The yes, but? Well, really uh, talking about transitional words like but and however, yes. So where I talk about something that may be a shortcoming so I'm honestly addressing it up front. And then I say, but, or however, and then I segue into my strengths. And people tend to remember what comes after but, right? That's why when you hear mm. the, honey, I love you, but, we <laughs> the, I love you, and we focus on what comes next. And when you understand that, you can become very strategic about how you communicate with people. And a lot of people never f- think, never figure that out. And so, as an example, Eric, um, an employee might be late to work all the time. And what does a manager do? They say, Eric, you know, you're coming in late. We've got to get that change. But we love you and you're doing great work. And they end with all this positive and you leave feeling really good and kind of forgetting about, you know, coming in late. What I really should be saying is, Eric, you do great work and we love you, but you're coming in late and everybody's noticing and it's having a negative impact on the team. And that has to change. That is what I want you to be focused on. That's the behavior change. So, Sometimes people just stumble through life and they never figure that out and they actually end up shooting themselves in the foot. Hmm. Now that would be, that would fall under consistency possibly? You're reaching into well, consistency? Well, actually we talk about it under the principle of authority. Ah, and, we, and we talk about it because people who are perceived as authorities have to have expertise. They have to, you know, to, to use your words a few moments ago, you got to have the goods. Mm-hmm. You, you really have to know what you're talking about, but you also have to be trustworthy. You have to be credible. And one one shortcut to becoming more trustworthy and more credible is to honestly put forth shortcomings or weaknesses, but then utilize those and transition into something that's a strength. When I work with a salesperson, the last thing that I'd want to have happen is I'm I'm pitching a product to you, and I'm just hoping you don't ask about a perceived weakness in our product or service. Uh, and then you do towards the end and I'm kind of backtracking and you're thinking, gosh, you know, if I hadn't brought this up, Brian would have, wouldn't have brought it up gotcha. much better for me to early on say, you know, Eric, one of the shortcomings that we have in our product is, you know, nothing is perfect. And then I segue over, I've gained credibility with you and I've removed that from the forefront of your thinking. Like, when's he going to address this? When's he going to address this? Gotcha. So a lot like, um, defense attorneys will, point out holes for the defendant right away to get them yes. to clear the air. Yep. Yep. That ga- that gains them credibility with with the jury. And also they can word it in a manner that's a little bit better than the other side. Yes, because the other side will will certainly probably make it even worse than it potentially is. So better off to 
to go in. And, you know, some some of your listeners might remember this as a kid. You're probably better off when you got in trouble to go home and tell your parents right away before the teacher called. You know, that might have softened the blow a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Either that or you hide really well. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, so let's go and go through these um, principles because obviously I'm already slipping on it a little bit. But um, we have um, reciprocation. That's mm-hmm. a pretty easy one, I think, for people to understand. Okay, so reciprocation is that natural tendency we feel, and I actually use the word obligation, this obligation we feel to give back to people who have first given to us. Now, you say you really want to focus on the practical application. Yeah. Here would be the practical application in a, for example, any of your listeners who might be in sales. When when you concede on a point, you're perceived as giving a little. So you might put something out. You might put out your product and your price, your offering, and somebody says no because they think they can get a better deal. And the person who is really good at influence strategically anticipates no. In fact, I like to say anticipating no is not pessimistic. It's strategic Hmm. because it allows you to think through, okay, what if Eric says no? What's my fallback position A or B and potentially C? Because when you say no and I moderate or concede on my request a little bit, quite often you will concede or moderate a little bit too. I mean, that's the basis of bartering really. But the psychology is when I give a little, you naturally feel this obligation to want to give a little too. And it makes it easier for us to potentially come to agreement. The person who's not very well versed in persuasion goes in with one best offer and that's it. And unfortunately, if I make an offer to you and you say no and I leave the situation and let's say I call you back in two days and I say, you know, Eric, I've thought about this. What about and I put a new offer out there? Mm-hmm. You don't perceive that as as conceding or giving. You perceive it as a whole new round of negotiation, mm-hmm. and you're probably just as likely to say no to that. So it's in the moment to utilize this principle of reciprocity. You have to be ready. What if somebody says no? What am I going to put on the table next? Okay, and I think I've actually heard that before, that getting to know is sometimes exciting and the best thing, because now you know here's the threshold. Yes, and again, you, but you being the expert in ter- whatever it is that you're selling, your product, your service, you need to have that fallback position. Now, even though I teach this, my wife used this on me one time <laughs> where she said many years ago, she said, Joe, that's my stepmother. She said, Joe's turning 65 and she really wants to go to Scotland to play golf. Mm-hmm. Would you mind if I went? And I said, yeah, I would mind because I want to go and now's not the right time. <laughs> And she said, fine. And she goes, well, would you mind if I went down to Florida for the week and played with her? I'm like, no, I don't care. Ah. And she told me later, she goes, I never want to go to Scotland. I knew you were going to probably say no, and it just was going to make Florida easier. And I said, touche, well played. Uh, I teach this and didn't even realize it. Yeah, and that's that's a very interesting point. Um, I've talked to some other experts um, who will be on the show later, but like uh, Chase Hughes and his whole job is getting terrorists to become traitors within two hours, essentially, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's kind of important to us, you know, help save lives. But according to him, some of these things, even if you know it, you cannot defend against it necessarily. Well, there's some truth to that in that 
we're so bombarded with information that we can't possibly filter everything we see and hear and take in and make these best logical decisions. And so these principles that we teach uh, operate as shortcuts. We hear enough, we satisfy, you know, it's satisfactory, it's good enough, we make a decision and we move on. And so in that conversation with my wife, I don't have my radar up going, okay, you know, is she trying to persuade me? What is she trying to get me to do here? No, I'm not thinking that. She's my wife. I love her. And, mm-hmm. But but she, having heard me talk about this so often, knew if he says yes to Scotland, wow, that'll be amazing. But if he <laughs> says no to Scotland, I'm ready to come in with another request, and that's going to be a week in Florida, and that will come easier than asking outright. So I, I've always told people – don't censor yourself. You know, it would have been a bad move for her to go, uh, he'll never say yes to Scotland, so I'm just going to start with Florida. And I might have resisted that just naturally. I might have resisted it more. Right. So always good to shoot for the sun, moon, and stars, but, you know, be ready if they say no. What is a second or third fallback position? No, that's that's awesome and definitely makes so much sense. Now, to the next principle is liking. Mm-hmm. So this principle, and this one, when you teach people, you can kind of tell they're sitting there going, really? This, you, this is what you're going to teach us? The principle of liking tells us that it's easier for us to say yes to the people that we know and like. Well, we all know that, right? I mean, this sure. is not rocket science. But where people don't really utilize this in a way that they could is they, they take this principle and the things that we teach and try to get people to like them. So, for example, you know, you and I talk just very briefly and you're a runner and I'm a runner. And, and, and so there becomes a connection. You'll like me a little bit more. But here's the reality, Eric. I will like you a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And the people who are very good at using this principle of liking don't go into situations thinking, how can I get people to like me? They go into situations and say, how can I come to like these people? How can I? And I can tap into the very same psychology I can look for things to compliment. I can um, find out what we have in common. And the more I compliment you and the more I find we have in common, the more I'm convincing myself that Eric is a really good guy. I really like Eric. And when you sense that, that's where you become so much more open to whatever I might ask of you. And, and I think that the reason that that is so helpful is because I, most people believe that friends do right by friends. If you sense that I truly like you, that begins to take manipulation off the table because we believe that our friends are going to treat us well and they're going to look out for our best interest. And here's the reality, Eric. When I come to like you, I do really want your best, uh, what's best for you right. because I do want the best for my friends. And so when I do workshops, a lot of times I will start with the principle of liking just because it very quickly helps us address manipulation. And I think people start smiling and nodding like, I get it. That makes sense. If I truly come to like these people, I don't want to manipulate them. And they'll know that I don't want to manipulate them. And that makes everything else so much easier afterwards. Yeah, I'm thinking that this may be the most abused principle with um, salesmen, everybody else, because they know that it works and they're very Mm -hmm. quickly asking oh where are you from of trying to find the commonality i would think that sincerity is probably the most important thing possible here like genuinely try to find things in people that you do like yes and i saw that in in my lengthy career at state auto and and i'm i'm seeing it now in droves where when i would get ready to travel 
and I love my family and I would prefer to be with my family than to be away with them. But if I was going to go to a place like Phoenix or South Dakota or Nashville, any of these places where we had offices and I could say, you know what, I am really looking forward to seeing the people down there because I've invested a lot of time. I would spend as much time with them as I could. Mm-hmm. And they sensed that and they took the training that I was offering. I wasn't the quote home office guy. It was Brian. We know him. We like him. We trust him. And they received it differently. And it was this great mojo. And where I've seen it now, um, having left State Auto, it has been so gratifying to see the emails and the phone calls from people who have thanked me and and have gone out of their way to help me as I move into my new venture by, by saying, I'm going to connect you with this person or this association, or I know people at this company. They want to help me because, one, they knew I genuinely liked them, and two, reciprocity i i gave my all to help them be better at what they do on a personal and a professional level and you do that and and people like i say will come out of the woodwork to want to help you when you need it yeah it's funny um one interesting side effect of this podcast is Mm -hmm. everybody's awesome i've really come to that conclusion they may not realize it but there's something about them that's just really unique or cool Mm -hmm. and it may seem like old hat to them because well they live their life but people are really cool. If you dig, you'll find some just amazing things about them. I, yeah, I, I agree. And with the principle of liking, probably one of my best examples is a, a guy named Brandon. About four years ago, Brandon and I were put on a project. He, he worked in our claims area. I worked in the sales area. And I got a distinct impression that the first time we were sitting in a meeting, he's looking at me like, why are you here? This <laughs> is my thing. I'm the, I'm the claims trainer. You're a sales guy. Why are you here? It wasn't a good vibe. Right. And, and then we were asked to travel together. We were going to be on the road like six out of the next eight weeks going to all of our claims offices. And I had to deliver some training around influence and how you could use it in the claims process. Hmm. And I thought, I, I don't want to spend six weeks on the road with somebody who doesn't like me. And so I had to put into practice the things that I preach And it worked beautifully. And not to just get Brandon to like me, but it made me truly interested in him and like him. And I saw a huge change by the end. And what was really neat was even though he left the company two years ago, he and I still communicate all the time. Our our thing is whenever we're traveling, I'll take a picture of a Starbucks cup and I'll text (laughs) it over to him. Hey, guess where I'm going? And he'll text back. But but I send him an a text the other day and I said, you know what, Brandon, one of the best things about having worked at State Auto was getting to know you and the friendship that we still have. And I meant it. Um, it's it's the relationships that we have with people, I think, that make our lives enriching and fulfilling. And and by putting into practice the things that I teach, I broke through this barrier with him and, th- and found out he is a really, really interesting guy. And a lot of other people, unfortunately, never got to see that. No, that... Totally makes sense. And I, I love all the relationships that I've gained doing the podcast, meeting other people, things like that. And it, it just fulfills you. Yes. Now, the next principle, and I feel like these almost lead into each other. Um, liking, the next one is social proof. Okay. Social proof, sometimes called consensus, or if you've raised kids, peer pressure. Mm-hmm. That, that feeling that we have to go along with the crowd, that we look at what other people are doing, what they're thinking, how they're behaving, and we're naturally pulled toward that. 
Now, this is one that when you explain it to people, you get a lot of resistance because people don't want to feel like they just go along with the crowd. They, they, they almost think that's like just being a lemming or a sheeple or something like that. Sure. But, the, but the reality is with this principle and, and all the principles, over the course of history, they've helped us survive as a species. I mean, when you think about social proof, that willingness to go along with the crowd, if we're a tribe 10,000 years ago mm-hmm. and there's a rustling in the woods off to the left <laughs> and all of a sudden people start running to the right, if you or I stand there and go, wait a minute, let's go see what it is. We, there's no need to be afraid. Right. Your, your sur- odds of survival and mine probably diminish quickly because there was going to come a point in time when something scary was in the woods. And so we learned that going along with the crowd tends to not all the time but it tends to most of the time be a wise decision um but again i think it's part of our country too because america is very individualistic Mm. when i've written articles on this i have i've had more people rail against it than any other principle because they want to feel like no i am captain of my own ship i make my own decisions that stuff doesn't impact me and i just smile and okay and because i realize they're unaware of how much it truly affects them well, and it's also funny because I think we defend against it in certain things where we may be specialized, but then in other things, which we don't really care, mm-hmm. we just go with the default. And you had mentioned the noise in the bush, which actually means that behavior genetically passed on because the one who got eaten with the bad genes got eaten. Yes. Um, now, on that, <clears throat> there are cultural differences too and i think you started to bring that up um Mm -hmm. asian culture it's even more profound isn't it yes there uh you the term we would use is collective society Mm. and and a friend who's a chaldini trainer in south korea and and he says you know the the nail that stands out gets hammered down it's not it's not necessarily in their society a good thing by and large to be the one who stands out whereas we kind of worship that here in our country, we're much more individualistic. So these principles affect people across the globe. I mean, social psychologists agree on that. It may be nuanced, and it may be more or less impacting in some areas, but it will be impacting. But but a principle like consensus, if you were to use it with uh, cultures from Asia, you'll probably want to use that much more than something else that is going to point out about being an individual success and things like that. Yeah, it makes total sense. And that moves us to another one. Uh, we touched on it earlier, but I want to explore more authority. Um, the gentleman I mentioned before, Chase Hughes, actually really promotes authority. He, uh, In his mind, authority is the most powerful of all the techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, with the people that I work with, I wouldn't say that it necessarily is, but it is powerful. right? There is uh, So the principle of authority for the people listening is, is just this, that when we're making decisions, we like to defer to people that we see as experts, those who have more wisdom, superior knowledge, right? That's why, you know, in April, many of us go to CPAs for our taxes, because that man or woman's an expert, and they can probably do our taxes better, they can do them faster, and it ultimately saves us time. If we have an issue in our body, we could probably go online and, and look up something, but we always feel better when a doctor tells us what he or she thinks is going on. And so it's very natural for us to defer to people that we see as experts. Um, 
there is a little bit of challenge to experts, though. I mean, with the um, last presidential election, the experts were wrong. And, and that gives <laughs> a lot of people pause to say, well, maybe experts really don't know all that they're that they think they do. But then there's a lot of others that, that we would not do without. We won't go to court without a lawyer. We won't take action, you know, for our physical health most of the time without a doctor. Uh, many, as I said, many of your folks listening probably won't do their taxes because it's too nuanced, the laws, and so they want somebody who's an expert. So we're deferring to experts all the time. Sure, or repair your own car. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially now when they're so complicated and computerized. Many people yes. wouldn't dare. Even people who were gearheads. I've heard people say, I, I can't. I can't work on, you know, a 2015, 16 car because of the computerization. They can do some very basic things, but they can't do what they used to do with cars that were made a long time ago. Yeah, now, um, actually, I forgot to go into how to defend against a couple of these. Um, social proof and, uh, and authority, how do you defend against these if they're being misused? Or how do you identify its misuse and defend against it? Well, with social proof, you're going to have to step back from the situation and say, am I just going along because that's what everybody else is doing? Or, or and, and then you're going to have to do a little bit of research on your own. Just because everybody's doing something doesn't mean that it's necessarily a good thing. Or sometimes just because you hear a big statistic, if you step back and say, well, wait a minute, let's explore this more. Here would be an example. Dennis Haysbert, who is a spokesperson for Allstate many years ago, stood in the Rose Bowl and the camera panned around and he said, this week, 110,000 people will fill the stadium to watch a football game. Last year, Allstate filled the stadium 10 times with the number of people who made the switch. And that left viewers thinking, wow, 1.1 million people switched to Allstate. Boy, I should call, get a quote, or I should go online. Now, there's not really context for that. Those 1.1 million, I mean, if their hit ratio is 5%, then you know they had to do millions upon millions upon millions of quotes to get that. Okay? Right. So sometimes when when statistics are used to try to move people in a direction, you have to step back and say, what, where are those statistics coming from and are they really valid? Here would be another example. Um, many years ago in the state of Illinois, there was a proposal to raise the state tax. It was The proposal was to go from 3% to 5%. Wow. One one side said it's a 66 percent increase in the taxes. And in, in a sense, it was yeah. two divided by three. The other side said it's a two percent increase in taxes. Right. So if you yeah. if, it's easy to vote for a two percent increase, nobody wants a 66 percent increase. People who saw those ads had to step back and say, what does the 66 mean or what does the two percent mean to make a more informed decision? Otherwise, by default, they're going to go two percent. No problem. Sixty-six percent. No way. I'll never vote for that. Okay. So the uh, the counter ads actually then responded to to each other. So they kind of cancel each other out in this case. Y yes, they it, they could, but it all depends too on whether or not you saw the counter ads, whether or not you whether or not that information ever came to you. Hmm. Okay. Now authority. So with authority. It's, it can be somewhat easy to deceive people when it comes to authority, and that's how a lot of scams work, where somebody appears to have these credentials. They dress the part. They look the part. They have the car. They have all, all the trappings 
that would go with success that would just make you think, oh, my gosh, you know, he or she must really do well without digging in and exploring. Are these legitimate? Um, what are other people saying? What are what have past clients had to say about this person? But you know what? A lot of people don't want to expend that time and energy. They they read or see enough. They're like, he or she is successful. I'm going to go ahead and follow their advice. One of the talks I did many years ago, um, one of my designations, it's CPCU, which is Chartered Property Casualty Underwriter. And I spoke at one of their ethics days. And my name of my talk was How Bernie Made Off With Our Money. It was <laughs> shortly after the, the Bernie Madoff scandal. And I talked about how he tapped into all of these principles to make it so easy for people to fall prey to his scheme. And, you know, Eric, you or I or your listeners could say, I never would have fallen for that. And I'm thinking, really? Some really, really smart people and some really, really smart money managers fell for it. People who really had expertise and, and asked far more questions than you or I might ever ask. So mm. we, shouldn't, we shouldn't think in hindsight, I would never fall for that. Uh, it's very, very easy for people to fall prey to these principles if, they're not, uh, if their antenna is not up and they're not asking questions. It's funny. Um, I actually interviewed a retired FBI agent who handled financial crimes. Mm -hmm. And one thing we discussed with just that right there, though, is a big tell is greed. A lot of people fall into cons because they're greedy. Mm -hmm. and, and people feed on that. Yep. And the number one reason that people will start to steal like that is simply because they know they can. When, when I was uh, with a different insurance company, we went through crime training, and they asked that question, why do you think people steal from their employers? And of course, people said things like drug habit, gambling, um, things, things of that nature. And they said, nope, because they see they can, and they take just a little bit, and mm -hmm. they don't get caught, and they take a little more. And then as human nature has it, they start justifying, well, I don't get paid enough. My boss is a jerk. And all of a sudden... They're taking lots and lots of money, but it all starts with they see they can and they take that first step. And it probably is the same with the greed. Oh, wow. You know, it was really easy to talk this person into this. Maybe I could talk a second person, a third person. And, and then again, justification comes in. You can't do without the money and the lifestyle. Yeah, it makes total sense. Like, oh, I'll just grab a ream of paper from the copy room because they've got, you know, 3000 of them there. And then it becomes other things, and, and all of a sudden, it just takes on a life of its own. Okay. Um, the next principle, scarcity. So scarcity is a principle that, that really does get abused a lot. The principle of scarcity alerts us to the fact that we want more of the things that we can have less of. When something is scarce or rare, we tend to want it more. It's a natural human phenomenon. Uh, a good example would be if you're if somebody listening to this is a parent, you've probably seen the moment you tell your kid you can't touch it, taste it, watch it, play with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all they want to touch, taste, watch and play with. And they're not being bad and they're not being disobedient. They're being human. The psychology of scarcity is at work on them. Once they realize they're not supposed to watch, touch, taste, whatever that case may be. There's something in all of us that wants to do that. That's why we have to touch the paint when it says wet paint, do not touch. Oh, come on. I got to really find out. Is this paint wet? Um, but the reason that this one gets so abused is because it's very easy to get people fixated on what they might lose if they don't take action. 
So an example that, that you or your listeners may be able to relate to, there's a knock on your door and it's a salesperson and it could be t- selling siding or roofing or um, painting or something. And they come in and they give you their pitch and they say at the end, Eric, if you sign today, I can save you 15%. But if I have to come back at a later date, I, I can't offer you the 15%. <laughs> and people think, oh, gosh, you know, I don't want to lose that opportunity. The question that you need to ask is, why couldn't you give me the discount? And what they'll probably say is, well, I'm so busy, you know, I'm going to be meeting customers all day tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And I would say, what's your close ratio? Hmm. I mean, this is not an easy sale. What is it, 10? If you're really, really good, maybe 20%. So let's say tomorrow you're going to go visit 10 people and maybe you're going to get two sales. You wouldn't come to my house for the guaranteed third sale. You wouldn't come and give me that same discount. You're going to offer all those other people. Come on, who are you fooling here? I mean, that's, that is a, a manufacturer use of scarcity. There's nothing scarce. That person's time, if a customer says, I'll buy, come over today, they will race over to their house. Legitimate scarcity would be, hey, with the fires in California and all the devastation to the forestry and things, the price of wood is going to go up. Right. We know the price of wood is going to go up. And so I might not be able to offer you the price a week or six weeks from now that I am offering you today. I'm telling you the honest truth. That would be legitimate use of scarcity. That gotcha. resource. Yeah. So, um, but it's, but it's so easy to manufacture scarcity. I mean, we see it with sales too, right? Oh gosh, you know, sale ends Sunday. Hey, you know what? That sale is going to be around in two more weeks. It's going to be there for Christmas, for, for Black Friday, for President's Day, for Labor Day, for Memorial Day. It's going to come back. Or so there'll don't be a make new a dis- model that's better. <laughs> yes. But, but we've become so conditioned to that, and stores know that, and so they're advertising, and it just kind of grabs people in the pit of their stomach. They just don't want to lose that opportunity. It's a very natural phenomenon. But what I've always found is if I don't make that decision and I look back, I, I, I've almost never, ever regretted it. It's like, oh, it was just in the moment that I was feeling that, but now time's passed, and, and I'm cool with the decision that I made. Do you ever find yourself almost angry when you see these tactics being used towards you, you're like, I know exactly what you're doing. Yes, there was there was a individual who was at our home. I came home. We were looking at getting new gutters and I came in the house and my wife at the time was stay at home. Our daughter was younger and this guy's sitting at the table and I don't trust anybody who doesn't have a legitimate proposal sheet. And he's just got a blank piece of paper. It's stuff written all over and crossed out. And, oh, we heard. Uh, a job in Bexley fell through and we can get the materials. And instead of being, you know, 3,500, we could get it for 2,900. And I think the first number he had on the sheet was 5,000, right? So he's using what we call the contrast phenomenon. Wow, right. $5,000, 2,900, this is a great deal. And I remember telling him, I said, um, I, he he was trying to get us to make a decision. And I said, there's nothing you could say or do that will get us to make a decision today. And he kept pressing hard. And I finally said, look, I teach this for a living and I understand exactly what you're doing. I respect the fact that you want to make the sale, but there is nothing, nothing you could say or do today that would get me to make a decision. And I literally walked him out the door to his car and he kept trying and he kept (laughs) trying to connect on the principle of liking. He told me our home is stucco and, and he, Oh, I have a stucco home. Yours is beautiful. And he just kept trying. And I'm like, just shaking my head, laughing, like, really? Um, and, and we didn't end up going with him. I mean, I wouldn't have given an individual like that my business. I mean, once I said, I understand what you're doing, I respect that you want to make the sale, I would have expected him to say, 
I get it. What could I do going forward that might help you make an informed decision? That I would have respected. Sure. Or even, okay, fair enough. Um, here's my car. Can I call you in a day? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. But I've had people who knock on the door and you know try to sell sell me something. And, and when I say no, I can feel the pit of my stomach. It's not always easy. And I think, wow, what's it like for the rest of the people in the neighborhood who are going to be faced with this, who don't understand the psychology that's at play here? If I teach it and I feel it in the pit of my stomach, it becomes really hard for other people to, to say no to some of the offers. Sure. I guess I'm... I'm embarrassed. My main defense is I don't answer the door. Well, I don't. I, I do that a lot, too. I'm watching a football game yesterday. And the doorbell rings and my wife's like, well, maybe it's so-and-so our neighbor. I'm like, ah. And I got up and it was just FedEx packages. So I was happy. <laughs> you relieved. Oh, good. Yeah, I hate even having to sign for something. Okay. <laughs> the last of the um, six principles is consistency. Okay. So consistency with the audiences that I work with. I typically say, well, people will ask this question, salespeople in particular, which of the principles is most powerful? And the common response, I'll say, it depends. It depends on the, where you are in the sales cycle. It depends on the person that you're interacting with. But I will tell them this. If I have to make a broad statement about which principle do I think is most effective in the sales process, it is the principle of consistency. And the principle of consistency alerts us to this. We feel this internal psychological pressure as well as an external social pressure to be consistent in what we say and what we do. So more than anything, if I give you my word, I don't want to feel bad about myself. So I try hard to live up to that. I also don't want to look bad in your eyes. And so that's, that's also a motivating factor. But consistency really starts from within. And I'm sure that you can think of a time, and I bet your listeners can think of a time where you gave your word to somebody that you would be somewhere to do something with them and then you had to back out. And if it's a friend, they probably understood because I'm going to guess your listeners probably had a legitimate reason that they could not fulfill that obligation. And when I ask audiences, give me one word. How did you feel when you had to tell your friend, I can't be there? I won't be able to do that. And I always hear words like awful, guilty, terrible, heavy emotional words. Sure. And then I say, you know, if we can avoid feeling awful, guilty and terrible, we will go out of our way to do so. And that's why we work so hard to live up to our word, because we don't want to feel bad about ourselves. And oh, by the way, I, I don't want to look bad to anybody else who knows that I made that commitment. So that's what this principle of consistency is all about. Hmm. The, the, the practical application to tap into this is simple. I always tell people, stop telling, start asking. When you tell someone what to do, you have not engaged this principle. They've not said that they would do anything, so they don't feel that internal pressure. But when you ask somebody, so here would be a good example. Um, our daughter, when she was younger, if my wife said, you know, empty the dishwasher, and then we took off for work, and we came home from work, it was a good bet the dishwasher wasn't going to be empty. And then we might even go to bed and wake up the next morning and the dishwasher still might not be empty. And then, you know, you can imagine how that goes with a teenage kid at the time, you know, where she would say, Abigail, I told you to empty the dishwasher. And then Abigail would say, I didn't hear you or I was busy. I was going to do it later. Right. The simple way around that would, sim would be this. If I saw her, I'd say, Abigail, will you please empty the dishwasher before you leave for school? 
She's either going to say yes and do it, or if she said, no, I can't, I'm in a hurry, I'd say, wait, hold on a second. Will you do it as soon as you get home from school before you leave for work? Now, that's actually uh, utilizing the principle of reciprocity, right? I conceded a little bit. I was willing to moderate. Okay, don't do it now, but do it as soon as you get home. And she would almost always say yes. And that's the difference. Once she said yes to either doing it right now or when she got home from school, she doesn't want to feel bad about herself and she doesn't want to have that conversation because she publicly told me that she would do it. So your listeners really need to think about how many times a day am I telling people either on the phone, in person or through email, I'm telling them what to do. But if I just asked and they would come back and say yes, they're more likely to follow through. And if they say no, because I'm thinking through how to make this request, I'm going to have my fallback positions and tap into the principle of reciprocity. Mm, okay. So um, I guess in the sales world, a very direct thing would be something like, if I can offer this to you today at a price that you can comfortably afford, would I have your business? Yes. And that's in sales, that's called the upfront close. It's trying to determine quickly what is it that you're looking for? If I can do this for you, would you be willing to do business with me? Now, I always tell salespeople, though, you need to frame that request in a way that is good for the other person, not for you. If they get a sense that all you care about is you, that's not going to work. Ah. So in a sales situation, I might say, um, <clears throat> as a business owner, Eric, I'm going to guess if you are like most of the people that I deal with, buying insurance is not one of your favorite things. Is that right? True. Yeah. It's not like, you know, getting up and go buy a flat screen TV or getting a new car or something you're going to tangible, you're going to have fun with. And, and I'm going to guess because you're like most people I've dealt with, you don't want to spend any more time on this than you have to. Is that right? Sure. And so what I'd like to do is put a proposal on the table that potentially could save you a lot of time and it might save me time too. And because uh, I'm pretty busy, I don't want to waste my time either. If we can talk about exactly what would go into your th decision and I can understand that. Here's my, my guarantee to you. If I can't do what you are looking for, I will tell you right away and I will remove myself from this whole quote process and that's one less insurance agent you have to deal with. Is that fair? Gotcha. <laughs> and, but I'm putting it in a, in a way that, you know, I've kind of highlighted your distaste for this thing that I have to do but I don't want to do. And, and I'm going to put it on the table that it could save you time and it could save me time, which is beneficial for both of us. But once you say yes, that, that sounds reasonable, we're going to talk about it. And I'm going to be honest. If, if you ask for a price or something I can't do, hey, Eric, uh, you know, God bless you. <laughs> I can't do that. You should stay where you are. But if yeah. I can do it, I'm going to come back and say, hey, I got great news, Eric. We talked about this and you said if I could do A and B and C that you would make the switch. We've done A, B, and C, and we've done actually a few things more. I think you're going to be really impressed with what we have to share with you. And that makes it easier for you to say yes to me. Okay. Now, let me say this last thing, too. The reason I say it's so important in sales, good salespeople talk 25, maybe tops 30% of the time, which is probably the exact opposite of what your listeners have experienced. People think of salespeople and they think they just ramble on and they just just say anything to try to get you to, to say yes or to not let you get away. No, a good salesperson knows the right questions to ask to allow you the space to share what your needs are and their intent 
they're listening intentively and uh, or attentively and they'll come back with other questions if they if they have concerns with something that you're sharing but this whole principle of consistency is built on asking questions get people to tell you what is what what they value what they believe what they need and when you can step in and say here's how it aligns with your values your beliefs your needs it's very easy for them to then say yes Hmm, that makes sense and that feeds right into liking too um like if you're selling a television, I guess. Uh, you might say, oh, okay. Is this, Do you have a TV now? Or what, what are you planning to have? Or mm-hmm. do it? which room do you want this for? Yeah. The, when you ask questions, you're going to uncover things past the principle of consistency. You're going you're gonna to hear things where you can say, hey, I'm like you. We have a 50-inch TV. Or I'm a runner like you're a runner. Or whatever it is, but you're going to hear things because they're going to go beyond just giving you the specific answer to a question. You will learn an awful lot about that individual that will make it easier for you to tap back into the principle of liking. Okay. Now that brings us to the seventh um, principle, which came out in persuasion, which I kind of feel like you can roll multiple of the six into it. Like, like it's sort of, rolls them together reciprocation liking social proof and and consistency i feel like all roll into unity in in a sense i i think the easiest way for people though to envision it is uh, sometimes i'll say it's it's like the principle of liking on steroids i mean it's just it's just way deeper than just the fact that you and i have the same pet or we both run the principle of unity is about identity it's it's that that we share an identity and we like to say this that that me is we or we is me right we're so closely identified with a group that we see ourselves as part of that family would be one of the tightest right mm-hmm. um we will go out of our way and do things for family even people who might be a little bit distant when we realize they're family we will do things for them that we might not do for people who weren't family the best example, though, that I can give you is my father, who served in the Marines. He was in Vietnam in the 60s. When my dad meets another Marine, and in particular, one who has seen combat, oh, yeah. I would swear he is closer to them than he is to me, his own flesh and blood. Because they have experienced something that few other people will ever really understand. And, and to me, that is the, the best picture that I have come across. Um, we, can, we can either tap into this by, by talking about our shared identities, you know, where if somebody doesn't know that, then it's not going to have any influence on them. But if they realize that you were a Marine and you saw combat, everything changes. Sure. We, we can also tap into it through experience. As we experience things together, we can tap into the principle of unity again, which goes much, much deeper than mere liking, which says, oh, you're, you're like me, so therefore I like you. This principle says you are, in a sense, of me. You, right. you and me, we are in some way deeply connected, and therefore people will be much more willing to go out of your way or out of their way to say yes to you if you had a request that you were going to make of them, if you're going to try to influence them. Yeah, it's funny. You can bring up that runner concept again because you and I could, uh, when we meet, we're runners. We identify as that. Yep. 
obviously not as strongly as a Marine, but we can even go deeper. Like, do you do marathons? I have. Mm-hmm. If yep. you're a marathon runner, now we're, we're a step even closer. That's right. And I've run marathons. And, and then if you start finding out you've run the same ones mm. and you can, and, and you can, you can bond over, over something. So now I was, I was very fortunate that when I was running, I realized I, I'm actually pretty good at this and, and I'm a really structured, dedicated person. And so I, I, when I realized I could be good at it, I, I trained my tail off cause I said, I want to see if I can qualify for Boston. Mm. And, and I was able to, and I went out and I ran it twice and, um, but if I talk to somebody who has run Boston and you talk about things like Heartbreak Hill and, and other spots, mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's, there's a bond there that not a lot of people can, can, um, identify with, but, but those people can. So that's, that's another example of, of unity. You're, you're like, we have experienced that same thing, maybe not together, but we have experienced it. Right. And I was also thinking of 50 staters. They have to be really, really clicky. Yes, because that's, I mean, uh, when I would run, I would spend six months getting ready because I, was, I wasn't just running to, to run it. I was running because I wanted to be competitive in time. Right. But, you know, when you get the people who, like, do one a week or two, or two a month because they've got that goal, like, to, to go to every state, um, I applaud them because that is, that is a tremendous toll on, on your body. I mean, just if you're going to do 26 a single 26.2-mile run, every week or every other week for, you know, some period of years. Uh, God bless you. <laughs> okay. Now to wrap things up an overall defense against all these strategies, you know, if you feel like you may be getting manipulated or even to find, to identify it, would you say that pausing is probably the most effective tool you can do? Stop. A- absolutely. Absolutely. To to take a moment to step back from the situation to try to analyze why am I thinking or feeling the way that I am? Is it just because I've I've heard, you know, 90% of people do this? Is it because this person told me they're an expert? And those things may be true. But to stop and think them through about how they might be impacting your decision. And, and you won't be able to fully identify everything. I mean, when we hear about the different biases, racial bias, confirmation bias, I mean, they are just a part of how human beings operate. But but we can try to identify why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? Why am I drawn to this? But the other thing that Cialdini mentions in his book is listen to your gut. Sometimes we're taking in things through our senses that we can't always cognitively rationalize. But there's that thing in us that knows in the back of the mind, it's taken in some piece of information that knows something is off, and we need to heed that. Mm. Um, you know, that you, you've sense. probably done this, and I'll bet, I'll bet your listeners have. You write an email, you look at it, you read it, you reread it, and you're like, there's something in you that's like, yeah, I don't know if I should send it. And Finally, you send it. And it's not like seconds later, you're like, darn it, there's the typo. Mm, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so it was, it was registering in the subconscious, but the harder you tried in the conscious to figure it out, you just couldn't. That same thing, when you're feeling it in your gut about somebody that you're interacting with, you know, it could be buying a car, it could be a life insurance policy. When, when your gut is telling you that something doesn't feel right here, the best thing you can do is say, you know what, my gut – I'm just feeling something in my gut. I can't identify it, but I've learned enough over the course of life that I am not going to go against that. I need time to think about this. 
and and then you you take your space and however much time you need to try to think through why what is it that's causing me to feel this way um you know people can call it intuition sixth sense but it's something that's registering in your subconscious again that's why you can't fully think what it is but it's back there and it's kind of alerting you that you need to slow down to consider what you're going to do next it's subtle and that makes sense because the techniques you are facing may be very subtle too so it might Mm -hmm. be something your subconscious picks up but it's you're also being i hate to say manipulated on the subconscious level too so maybe that's yes, why you, you can't immediately know why something's not right. It just is. Yep. There was a really good book um, called The Gift of Fear. Gavin De Becker. Ga- yes. That, in a sense, explains, right? The, that, that gift, that, that fear that you have. You, you don't know what it is or why. And, you know, especially women have that, that sense, but they don't, want to become a, they don't want to come across as bitchy or something like that. So they don't heed it. And sometimes really bad things happen. But the reality is there is something in us that's taking in um, through our senses, sight, sound, smell, whatever. It's taking it in and it's registering back there. It's a survival thing and you better listen to it. In some sense, that happens even with with influence. You're taking in this information, but you're not feeling good about it. You better do what you can to extract yourself from the situation and think through the decision that you're about to make. Another example that is Malcolm Gladwell's Blink. Yeah. Yeah. He 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 uh, cites a lot of uh, interesting things in the book where our subconscious is impacting our behavior in ways that we just have no clue. Yeah, I think he had a, a art expert who saw a statue that had been authenticated by everybody in the world. And he just looked at it. And he's like, it's wrong. Yep. And it instantly and he didn't. And it took him a while to figure out why. I guess it was the hands or something. Mm hmm. So very interesting stuff. Um, now, where can people follow you and learn more? Well, my website is influencepeople.biz. And from there, you could click on the LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and follow me. Those are the, the main social media um, vehicles that I use. And I'm, I'm out there. I, I accept just about everybody on LinkedIn. I know there are some people who look at it and say, hey, I don't know who this person is. But if somebody reached out to me and, and I wasn't sure who they were, I'm going to accept it. And I'm going to send them a note back and say, hey, Eric, thanks for reaching out to connect. I'm curious. How'd you come across my profile? What I've found most often is it's people are taking my courses at LinkedIn. So, you know, I definitely am glad that I accepted there. So that, that would be the place to start. And at the website, they're going to see videos. They're going to see offerings I have. I've been blogging on this for like 10 years. They'll be able to read about the different principles or how they apply in business or sales or parenting. So there's a lot of, lot of information. That would be the best place to go. Well, excellent. And it is a good site. I highly encourage everybody to check it out. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on. I, I feel like we covered a lot of territory, and I've learned a lot myself. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. And uh, if you ever want to go deeper on anything specific, I'd love to come back and help you out. Sounds great. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. 
You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that, that really scares me. Yeah, I had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money's a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm.